six million dollar man or the bionic man started life in 1972 as a novel entitled cyborg by author martin caden in it astronaut steve austin was severely wounded whilst test driving a new type of military plane he was left barely alive with only one limb left intact and blind in one eye the Office for Strategic Operations, led by Oscar Goldman, ordered scientist Dr. Rudy Wells to use revolutionary new techniques in bionics to essentially rebuild Austin in a way that made him better than he was before. Steve Austin is outfitted with two new legs capable of running at great speed, a bionic left arm with almost human dexterity and the strength of a battering ram, and a new, removable left eye that is used as a miniature camera. A steel skull plate is installed in his head to replace bones smashed by the crash, and one of the fingers of the hand incorporates a poison dart gun. Austin also has a radio transmitter built into his rib. After exploring what this level of destruction does to a man's ego, and even going so far as to have Austin consider suicide, Austin is required to pay the piper i.e. justify the cost of rebuilding him by embarking upon a spy mission for the OSO. Austin quickly becomes a high-tech James Bond, whose gimmick is that the gadgets are himself. In 1973, the novel was adapted by Universal Television into a TV movie, written by Howard Rodman, with a script polished by an uncredited Stephen Bochco, and directed by Richard Irvin. Minor modifications were made to make the Bionics more affordable for a TV budget. His legs were still nuclear-powered wonder toys, capable of propelling Steve at speeds of up to 66 miles per hour, but his right arm was now bionic rather than his left, presumably to make life easier for the actor playing the part. The eye was now bionic as well, and capable of zoom magnification rather than being a camera. It was also not removable. Austin also had no offensive weaponry on TV, so out was the poison dart and the radio transmitter in the rib. Lee Majors was cast as Steve Austin, and was the only actor to appear in the pilot to move over to the subsequent series. Oscar Goldman was not a part of the pilot. Instead, the head of the OSO was Oliver Spencer, played by Darren McGavin. And whilst the character of Dr. Rudy Wells did migrate to the subsequent telly show, he was played by three different actors over the course of the series. Martin Bolson played him in this initial telefilm. Alan Oppenheimer, best known as the voice of Skeletor, played him for two seasons in the series that followed. And Martin E. Brooks stepped in for seasons three through five, and for the spin-off The Bionic Woman. The pilot movie, like the novel that inspired it, was a darker, more character-based piece than the series, with Majors given more meat to chew on than in any subsequent episode, and McGavin being far more of a foil for Austin than Goldman. Goldman was Steve's big brother, tended to refer to him as pal, but Spencer is oily, untrustworthy, penny-pinching and arrogant. In short, far more believable as a government employee. The pilot is, for the time, one of the best of its kind, with a level of characterisation and verisimilitude not seen past the series' first season. The series spawned by the pilot went on to astonishing success. It's hard now to describe just what a successful show was in the 1970s to audiences more familiar with trending and streaming. 
streaming show can now be considered a global smash with 180 million impressions worldwide. And yet the actors somehow remain anonymous. The $6 million man was seen by a global audience, but it made Lee Majors into a major international star, something only increased by his marriage to the biggest sex symbol of the day, Farrah Fawcett. Running for five years, the series spawned a toy and merchandise bonanza, books and comic strips and a successful spin-off series, the aforementioned Bionic Woman, which was also a merchandiser's wet dream. From its memorable and quotable opening credit sequence, its earworm of a theme tune, its iconic sound effects and family appeal, The Six Million Dollar Man was one of the most successful shows of the decade. Despite its popularity, the series has only ever returned as three made-for-TV reunion movies in the 1990s. These telefilms did not spawn a further continuation of the series, and, despite many attempts, no reboot has ever gotten off the ground. This despite the fact there have been a lot more developments in prosthetic limbs over the years, and marrying this onto a science fiction framework would seem to be a no-brainer. The Six Million Dollar Man languishing in development hell has been for a number of reasons. Some attempts to bring it back were boneheaded, such as the Jim Curry comedy version, which thankfully never materialised. A lacklustre reboot of The Bionic Woman did err in 2007, and was as fun-free as you would expect, given it was made by one of the makers of the new Battlestar Galactica. Due to copyright issues, it was completely divorced from the Six Million Dollar Man, which may have been the best thing that could have happened. It's those rights issues that seem to keep foiling a new version. Seemingly, the novels are a different copyright to the series. Rights to the novel would allow access to the characters of Steve, Rudy and Oscar, but they would be forbidden from using any of the iconography from the show, which would also be a big nostalgia selling point. Rights to the TV show would allow access to that and also Jamie Suvers, the Bionic Woman, and Max the Bionic Dog, which leads us into the only reboot we've ever been given so far. In 1998, Kevin Smith wrote a script for a proposed movie based upon the property. It was rejected by, in Smith's own words, an exec who dismissed it as being more like a comic book than a movie. I presume that exec no longer has a job. In 2011, Dynamite Comics, who never met a license they didn't like, decided to dust off Smith's script and adapt it into comics form, having found success in adapting Smith's equally unproduced script for The Green Hornet. Dynamite president and publisher Nick Barushi was a fan and employed some pretty top talent to develop Smith's script. Cover art for the series would be provided by Alex Ross. The script would be adapted by Phil Hester and the art would be by Jonathan Lau. Interestingly, the comic is called The Bionic Man, the $6 million price tag now being as much a relic of the 70s as Moodrings and Bell Bottoms. It is also based upon the Universal Television series the Six Million Dollar Man, not the novel Cyborg. Again, I presume this to be down to those pesky rights issues I mentioned earlier. The first issue, Flight of the Daedalus, opens with a six-page dialogue-less sequence in which a bald man in a purple jumpsuit trashes a research laboratory. No, it's not Lex Luthor, because this guy murders many people in brutally graphic ways, including, but not limited to, snapping someone's head so hard it turns around on itself, and cutting a man's head through the middle, severing the eyes 
from the nose. He also destroys a cyborg arm. We will later find out that this isn't the first such hit on a lab like this, and that this lab is run by Oscar Goldman, and is part of the renamed OSI, altered from the book's OSO. So presumably all this research was related to bionics in some fashion. It's entirely possible, rights issues again, that the creators of this comic book cannot call it the OSO, as it was called the OSO in the novel, and it was the OSI in the television show. Rights are weird. The opening is very much designed to show us how edgy this new bionic man is. Violence of this sort would never have flown on the series, not just because of the times, but also because the show was aimed at families. The original novel was a lot harder-edged in both its science fiction and its tone, but this felt like yet another property being adulted up to ensure its cool pedigree. This carries over to the next scenes. Exposition-heavy dialogue is the order of the day, as we meet Oscar Goldman and a grumpy army stereotype named General Hal McClintlock, who is General Thunderbolt Ross from the Hulk comics in all but name. McClintlock is a blustering man, banging on about Steve Austin being the best pilot ever seen, and one of the bravest, but goddammit, his timekeeping sucks. Goldman is here because the prototype plane Austin is to pilot is one of his inventions. McClintlock disappears after this opening, never seen or mentioned again, and if I was budgeting a film version of this, I would cut this superfluous character immediately. Steve is late because he's busy bedding his fiancée, schoolteacher Jamie Summers. The dialogue between them reads as if it's written by a teenager who imagines that this is what sexy talk between adults sounds like. It's hard to know who to blame for this. It feels like Smith, but it could equally be Phil Hester. Now I like Kevin Smith. He seems like a decent guy and a great friend to have in your corner. But creatively, he and I parted ways around the time of Jane's silent Bob Strike back. Other than Red State, I don't tend to vibe with his work anymore, and a lot of it is down to the overly vulgar and immature dialogue such as this. Still, it's nice to see Jamie so soon, and it's a nice way of using what we know from the series that the creators of that show didn't know when they were making the early episodes. Being an origin story, all the necessary origin material is doled out in short order. Steve flies the experimental craft, something goes wrong, Steve crashes, End of part one. The art is pretty good, tells the story well, exactly what you expect from comic book art. Nobody looks like the actors from the TV show, presumably, again, due to rights issues. Lee Majors was yet another of those bland, handsome, brown-haired guys that crop up in every era of television. In the 70s, it was Majors. In the 80s, Dirk Benedict. In the 90s, David Borianaz. In the noughties, Nathan Fillion. And that's not including Kevin Bacon, Gary Cole, Chris Pratt. I'm sure you can add your own names to the list. To Jonathan Lau's credit, he resists the temptation to make Austin look like any other familiar actor. And even Alex Ross's covers clearly feature someone who kind of, sort of, resembles Majors without actually being Lee Majors. Issue 2, A Man Burly Alive, does a good job of evoking the crash from the TV show by using the dialogue we heard every week. She's breaking up, etc. And then we take a break from Steve to focus on the political shenanigans occupying the OSI. Oscar is not the head of the department here. Rather, he has a boss, Margaret Carlyle. 
Carlisle is more like the Oliver Spencer character of the original telefilm, aggressive, manipulative, and firmly of the belief that a bionic man is the property of the government. It is there to be used, abused, and shut down when not operational. Oliver Spencer also felt Steve was property, little more than a wind-up toy, and Darren McGavin's natural antagonistic nature was far more interesting than Goldman's avuncular government stooge. If I was being uncharitable, I would say that Darren McGavin was given the sack because he was a much better actor than the six million dollar man really deserved. But I'm not being uncharitable. Let's just assume Darren McGavin was off filming Kolchak and leave it at that. Carlisle strongly echoes McGavin. Exposition explains that the sword-wielding bad guy from the opening of issue one is a failed bionic experiment of the OSI, and the only thing that can stop him, especially as he's now in bed with the Russians, is another bionic man. Except they don't have a candidate that meets all of the criteria. You can see where this is going, right? Again, Smith Hester overdoes the grim for the sake of it, implying that this evil bionic man force-fed people their own arms and may even have eaten them himself. Edged lordiness like this, just for the sake of it, is tiresome. It may have played better when it was initially written, even though I remember I wasn't fond of it, but there's something sad to me about grown-ass adults taking something kids enjoyed and making it so they can't watch it anymore. We even get a gratuitous use of the word fuck. Because of course we do. More time is spent on the bad guy, Hull. I would bet money Hull was originally Barney Miller, the TV show's $7 million man, but here named after a city in North Yorkshire. He's a nasty piece of work, is Hull, stealing the OSI's tech to sell it to the Russians so they can have their own bionic super weapons. This did raise interesting questions. Any tech that is being worked upon by a country for defence or whatever, is normally being mimicked by another country. So why didn't Russia have a bionics programme? Did they have their own kit? Or Airwolf? This is a pretty nifty idea. Hull is selling his stolen tech to somewhere called Leonov Tech. I hope they teched the tech, which would enable them to tech the tech. Issue 3, We Can Rebuild Him, establishes that Rudy is friends with Oscar and Steve, but does not work for the OSI, and Project Cyborg is all Oscar's idea. In the book and the TV show, it was Rudy who pioneered the bionics, and Oscar who funded it. Oscar essentially recruits Rudy after Carlisle tells Oscar that, as far as she's concerned, Steve is dead, and they can operate on him if they so choose. She'd prefer Steve was on board, but that's not a priority. Most of this issue is Oscar and Rudy trying to convince Steve that he can be better than he was before. Better. Stronger. Faster. Steve's pain at his accident is tangible, and it's here that Smith slash Hester really succeeds. When Smith gets out of his own way, ditches the coarse dialogue and concentrates on character, he can spin a good yarn. The dialogue exchanges between Rudy and Oscar are particularly good for establishing Steve's state of mind and why he'd rather be dead. The art, showing us the full extent of Steve's injuries in a way 1970s TV never could, also has an impact far beyond the visceral and unnecessary violence of the scenes with Hull. It takes a nurse whose brother knew Steve, and who died in an accident similar to Steve's, to snap him out of his death wish. This was a lovely little human touch, and I'm glad it didn't turn out to be something Rudy or Oscar set up, 
That would have been cynical. However, the best is yet to come. Oscar brings Max, the German shepherd, to see Steve. People with long memories, or those that were paying attention to me earlier on, will know that Max was the bionic dog in the Bionic Woman series. But it actually makes more sense here, in that they tested the bionics on Max before they went to human testing. I don't necessarily approve of animal testing myself, but, you know, this is fiction, and Max got to be bionic. Seeing the dog pee is a nice little, hey, look, his equipment still works, moment that doesn't resort to typical Smith gags about penises. So with issue four, Steve finally goes under the knife. Rather callously, this version of the telling has the OSI remove Steve's good arm and eye, making him almost completely bionic. Capabilities are updated. Steve's spine and skeleton are reinforced to eliminate the main scientific complaint many had about the show, that the minute Steve used his bionic arm, it would render his flesh like tissue paper. He has wireless and USB capabilities, can lift over a ton, and will be able to leap and run far higher or faster than a normal man. His eyes are capable of recording and uploading data in 4K quality, and magnify images up to three miles away. His face is also altered, allowing Steve to manipulate his looks to mimic the shape and colour of any ethnicity, which would seem like it'd be something that needed to be handled very, very delicately. This version also has a fail-safe device built in, courtesy of Margaret Carlyle. This was easily my favourite issue so far. It's heavy on character, while still providing enough plausible science for the fiction. Steve seems quite happy with the alterations, which he wasn't in the original show. Also, unlike the telly movie, Steve agrees to work for the OSI pretty quickly. Steve still hasn't mentioned going seeing Jamie, and it isn't clear if she even knows he's still alive. This will come back later. Smith slash Hester do a great job of using the TV show's opening narration as part of Oscar's spiel on how Steve will be rebuilt, and this was a nice touch of nostalgia that worked. There are questions I had. If Steve is barely using his cardiovascular system, does he need to eat? Or sleep? It states the bionics are doing all the heavy lifting, so he'll really feel tired. How would he exercise? If he does eat, I can't see a portly bionic man going over well. Issue 5 is Steve's first mission and his first encounter with Hull. This is Steve's first use of his malleable face, which leads to a genuine smile. Steve is ordered to take a man's place, and to do so, he kidnaps the guy, ties him up, and then mimics him by looking at him so his malleable face can do its thing. Steve has taped his mouth up to prevent him from speaking. His Mission Impossible-style mimicry also doubles the tape. This leads into issue 6, which is the second act action beat. Carlyle orders Steve to engage Hull against Oscar's better judgement. The fight doesn't go badly. Smith slash Hester avoids the cliché of having Steve getting his head handed to him in his first meeting with the bad guy, rather having Steve distracted helping civilians. There's a train gag straight out of Spider-Man 2, but if this was in Smith's original script, then this predates that, so we'll give him benefit of the doubt. People's reactions to a real-life cyborg in the midst is mostly well handled. Smith slash Hester, again showing their characterization and dialogue, can be on top form. Carlyle, fearing Steve is losing, orders activation of the failsafe, but Oscar fights her on this and wins that battle. This is a showing of her true colours. 
She ordered Steve to engage and then gets cold feet when the fight spills out into the general public's view. If she'd listened to Oscar, this would have all been avoided. Hull escapes and kills Leonov. Steve also manages to get away, and feeling slightly lost, he ends up back home, where he sees Jamie. Issue 7 sees them confront each other, and, despite the return of the slightly skeevy sexualized dialogue and at least one gay joke, it is a Kevin Smith script, remember, Steve and Jamie's reconciliation is quite sweet. Her reunion with Oscar doesn't go quite as well. Jamie blames him for Steve lying to her and slaps him across the face. This isn't strictly true, but whatever. The rest of the issue provides the necessary background on Hull, or Avery Hull, which is his given name. If you've read any amount of comics or pulp fiction, you can pretty much work out his backstory. Hull was a highly decorated soldier, a true-blood patriot. He joined the OSI to be all that he could be, and he was, and more. On a rescue mission, though, Hull went off book to rescue some Iraqi soldiers being tortured by the Republican Guard and was shot up. Oscar elected to make him the world's first bionic man. However, the process was not refined. The containment units used for Hull's nuclear processors leaked from the inside, like an old battery in your remote control, and he became erratic. Hull disappeared, and shortly afterwards, OSI divisions started being broken into and tech stolen and sold to Leonov. However, with Leonov dead, Oscar is unsure of what Hull's next move is. However, a single man was reported stealing an EMP device, and Oscar believes this to be Hull. Margaret orders Steve to take him down, but Steve refuses. Margaret activates the failsafe. Another incredibly talky issue. This would have to have been simplified or worked around in any film version. While sitting around chatting is fine for a Kevin Smith movie, characters gathered around delivering stultifying exposition whilst the camera swoops around them to try and make the scene visually interesting is not what one wants from an action movie. Hull's backstory is rather generic, and not as interesting as the $7 million man in the TV episode of the same name, but it establishes the bad guy and gives us an antagonist. At no point is it ever dwelled upon that this is actually the OSI's fault. If they'd done their due diligence and checked the batteries, maybe they wouldn't have leaked, and maybe none of this would have ever happened. Issues 8, 9 and 10 are the exciting conclusion, and it's pretty by the numbers for an action movie. This isn't a diss. The conclusion of modern day actioners all mostly follow the same template. OTT action, explosions and violence. This amps up the violence because, hey, edgy, throws in a fur bit of self-aware dialogue. This is like a goddamn movie, someone explains at one point, and adds in the unnecessary element of Jamie being used as a hostage. Jonathan Lau handles the action scenes with aplomb. It all concludes reasonably well, tying up most loose ends. Overall, I did enjoy this. It's the closest we've got to a reboot of The Six Million Dollar Man, and was at least a serious attempt to reboot and update without sending it up. I'm not convinced the original novel was even looked at, but again, pesky rights issues may have precluded that. There are elements that don't work. The Game of Thrones level of violence is completely out of place for this property and would have been excised if the studio had wanted a PG-13 movie. Likewise, the redundant swearing could, again, have all easily been cut. I know a PG-13 allows one use of the F-word, but personally I think if you don't need it, don't use it. 
M using it in No Time to Die, for example, took me out of the film for a second, because no Bond film before has ever found it necessary. The other issue is Jamie Summers. This isn't the intelligent, thoughtful, sensitive and resourceful character of the TV show as played by Lindsay Wagner. Rather, this Jamie is a sex-obsessed cliché with no function in this script but to A. Be the girlfriend and 2. Be the hostage. She barely gets Steve back after being told he's not really most sincerely dead and she's after getting in his pants. After being held hostage and facing death, all she can ask about is whether the OSI upgraded Steve's penis. It's all a bit crass, to be honest. Still, when the gags land, they are funny. There's a smile raised at the old bionic sound effects used in the show, and due reverence paid to the iconic opening titles. The alterations to some of the characters are mixed. Steve, being a fighter pilot, makes sense. Rudy, not being involved in the bionics prior to Steve's accident, a head-scratcher. Rudy is required to learn all about the bionic technology, and how to perform a procedure that has never been done before in less than 48 hours, where it makes much more sense to just be having be part of Oscar's team from the beginning. He also disappears from the story once his function to the plot has been performed. The story ends like a TV pilot, with Oscar offering Steve a job with the OSI, now that Carlisle has been removed from her position following the Hull debacle. It ends with Steve and Jamie off to have the bionic sex. Because of course they are. Let's hope that it's not that that goes... No, 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 no. This incarnation of the bionic man continued beyond issue 10, although Smith would no longer be credited, as this was the last issue to use his script as the basis for the story. It would run for a healthy 25 issues and one annual, but both Hester and Lau would leave the book within a few more issues. Alex Ross would also stop providing covers after about a year. The rest of the series would be a greatest hits package by new writer Aaron Gillespie and artist Ed Tao. Interspersed with stories about Steve's family, the next arc would be an updated take on Bigfoot, followed by the updated telling of Jamie's accident and her being given bionic status. An annual would retell the Death Probe story arc, and then the regular comic would go back to Dr. DeLenz, the robot maker, and the Fembots. One might cynically argue that having redone all the iconic touchstones, the writers had nowhere else to go. Dynamite would nix this series in favour of adopting the then-comics trend of providing a new season of the TV show, but in comics form. The Six Million Dollar Man Season 6 would arrive in 2014, and I may cover that on a future show. The Bionic Woman received a similar reboot that ran for 10 issues, and was even more grim and gritty than The Bionic Man. It didn't really find favour and was also ditched in favour of a season 4 comic book continuation of that TV show. There was also a Wonder Woman Bionic Woman crossover based upon both the television shows, not the comics. So we were treated to a Lindsay Wagner, Linda Carter team up, something that many a young lad probably dreamt about as a kid. The covers were by Alex Ross. Sadly, again, due to rights, we never got a $6 million man at the Incredible Hulk comic crossover, which seems like a missed opportunity. There have been unofficial takes on the $6 million man in the intervening years. Jake 2.0 was a television show about a similar kind of secret agent in which Lee Majors made a guest appearance. The recent film Upgrade was perhaps more based on the $6 million man, featuring even the lines of dialogue we can make him better than he was before. Better, stronger, faster. 
upgrade centred around stem cell research and nanobite technology, but the result was pretty much the same. A guy who could run fast, perform special deeds, record everything that went on. The difference being, the $6 million man was an ode to technology. Upgrade was a warning. It's well worth checking out, though, if you're a fan of Bloomhouse horror movies or The Six Million Dollar Man and Knight Rider, to which it also bears a startling similarity. The Six Million Dollar Man is currently still in development hell, with the production of the film now starring Mark Wahlberg having missed its dates twice. As of a recent interview, Wahlberg was still interested, but acknowledges that he's now ageing out of the role. I'd be more inclined to bring the show back as a TV series rather than a film. The title is a bit of a stumbling block, but simply call it The Six Billion Dollar Man, as with the proposed Wahlberg film, or revert to the original title, Cyborg, or do as the comics did and just call it The Bionic Man. A few years ago, my pick for Steve Austin would have been Jensen Ackles, but even he is now 45 years of age, and a physically demanding role like Steve Austin may be better casting a young 30-something like Aaron Taylor-Johnson, with Sidney Sweeney for Jamie. Or maybe leave the Bionic Man alone. He was an analogue hero for an analogue age. Fans of the TV show from when it originally aired are now all in their late 40s, early 50s, at the youngest. There's no nostalgia appeal there for the kids of today. Maybe Colonel Steve Austin should be allowed to run, in slow motion, naturally, into the sunset. In all his decades of publishing history, one event has affected Superman more than any other. Worlds lived, worlds died, and that was only the beginning. Superman was never the same. Presenting Superman in Crisis. Available weekly from January 3rd, 2022 at com. Okay, let's have a look at the email sack, should we? Matt Prather's emailed in. Hey, Andy. Hey, Matt. Listened to the last of your brand new day podcasts. It was nice to get your curated recommendations for this period, having not taken the plunge into that era of spider lore. Getting together with an old friend to do some back-issue bin-digging in the not-too-distant future, and this will give me something to look for. Spending time with my family discussing comics over the holidays, this mainly being because I buy a lot of books and comics as gifts. But I digress. The majority of the positive responses happened to be in regards to Superman and his recent story arcs. This coupled with your comments about the Superman books the last time I emailed has given me hope. And diving back in, the never-ending battle. Hopefully that Michael Bailey is leading us to treasure. Thanks as always, Matt Prather. Well, I listened to Mike as well. And I did buy Superman's Son of Kal-El by Tom Taylor. And you know what? It was a cracking good read. So much so that it led me into Tom King's... Is it Tom King? No, it's Tom Taylor, isn't it? Tom Taylor's Nightwing, which is also a cracking good read. And also on the Superman train, World's Finest by Mark Word. Uh, is also a cracking good read. And I recently purchased, believe this or not, Ripley, an actual paper comic starring Superman for the first time in absolutely ages. And that paper comic, if I just leaf through the comics that I have here at the side of me, that I'm in the process of reading, there you go. That's an actual paper comic. Action Comics 1050. 
I actually bought a copy of it based on Mike's recommendation. I've not read that yet because I'm reading the Superman Warlord. Is it Warlord or War Warworld trades that were recently on sale on Comicsology? I'll get to that eventually. But, you know, it seems really weird to be in a position at the minute where there's a lot of new comics that are quite good. Even over at Marvel, the Fantastic Four is really good at the minute as well. Really enjoying what's going on in that book since the relaunch. Um, the stories for that are written by, let me just pick up, I've got an issue here. Ryan North is writing it and Iban Coelho is drawing it. And that too has been an astonishingly enjoyable tale. First three issues are out as I record this. Issue four probably out by the time it's released. So there you go, Matt. There's some recommendations for you. Rob McCarthy's emailed in. Wasn't reading Spider-Man during Brand New Day, but I think they were dealing with a new printer. Grant Morrison X-Men fell apart. With a new printer, Grant Morrison X-Men fell up. What does the printer have to do with Grant Morrison's X-Men falling? Should there be a full stop there somewhere? I don't know. Number two, Dark Reign was basically, Osborne is too powerful to touch. Sounds a bit dull. It bugged me that they explained why some heroes didn't deal with Osborne. The FF was dealt with very quickly. Yeah, when they brought Osborne back, they kind of felt the need to do something Lex luthor with him. And it just did not work for me at all. You know, like I said, he he has fought one other superhero, hasn't he? He fought the Human Torch in the Spider-Man Goes Coward arc from... Ooh, the lead it core. Is it issue 17 and 18 and 19, that one? It's around, though. He fought the Human Torch, though, and I think that's pretty much the only time he's ever fought another superhero, unless... Was there an Untold Tales, maybe? Where he did as well? I don't know. I can't remember. There may have been. But other than that, the Green Goblin, Norman Osborn, was a Spider-Man villain. And that's pretty much all he was. And I, I kind of like him that way. You know? Anyway, that about wraps it up for this time. Hope you enjoyed the past couple of episodes. We've been churning out quite a lot. Over Christmas, Michael and I got together and we did um, a Star Trek two-parter that hopefully you have listened to and enjoyed. I say hopefully, you never know. Uh, and then this one, and there's more to come this year. Unless I decide, I don't know. I don't know who's listening to this anymore. Can't see viewing figures, downloads, whatever. Doesn't matter. Okay, doc, see you all again real soon. You can he-mail? Hey, he-mail, hey, he-mail. You can he-mail me. That's like He-Man's email, isn't it? He-mail. Uh, <laughs> wasn't She-Hulk's letters paid She-mail? That's quite interesting. Yeah. I may do some Doctor Who stuff this year as well because it's the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. Maybe I'll do some Jodie Whittaker episodes just to prove some knobhead on Twitter that, yes, it's real Doctor Who. Whatever real Doctor Who is. Hey Kids Comics at virginmedia.com is the email address. It's going to be fine. Do you know what makes it fine? Don't watch the news. Anyway, I'll see you all again real soon. Goodbye.